This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome to Junior Doan's The Spark. I'm Junior Doan, and thank you for tuning in. My guest today, Deborah Brevort, is an award-winning writer of plays, musicals, and operas. Her works include The Women of Lockerbie and Murasaki's Moon. Welcome, Deborah. I understand that you're uh, a graduate of Kent State uh, twice that you have an undergraduate degree in political science and English and a graduate degree in political science. And furthermore, your early career was in a sense in politics because you worked for Governor Terry Miller in Alaska in some capacity. Would you share that adventure with us? Sure. Um, I've always been a great lover of literature. So that was sort of a natural for me to study English. Um, and I stumbled into really wonderful professors at Kent State in political theory, actually, and uh, did a degree because I won a, a scholarship for a free master's and uh, just really loved the ideas of politics. And it continues to be an interest today. Um, I was in a first marriage um, back during those years. And uh, my ex-husband and I went around the country looking for someplace where we could sort of create our own lives. We were young and naive and we didn't even know what that meant. And we um, landed in Alaska um, uh, on a trip and we got stuck by accident in Juneau. We went to get um, the ferry to continue moving south and they said, oh, we're on the winter schedule now. The next ferry isn't until next week. And there <laughs> we were. And it was like, well, what do we do now? And we're sitting in a gas station in our VW camper van and I'm wondering, well, my goodness, what's here? And I look over and I see a poster for a play. I said, oh, look, it looks like they have a theater company. And got out of the van and went into a phone booth, plugged in a quarter and called this number. And the person who answered was Molly Smith, who today is the artistic director of Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. But she was an Alaskan and she says, oh, yeah, no, no, um, I'm trying to start a theater company. And uh, and we just started talking in the pouring rain late at night. And uh, I hung up and said to my ex-husband, I said, there's a theater here. And well, we never did get back on the ferry. 
going south. We ended up staying there. Um, and uh, I had this master's degree in political science, so I got a job uh, as a barmaid and a, <laughs> and a waitress. And one night I'm waiting tables and somebody's talking to me and uh, one of the people I'm serving and, and uh, they said, you know, you look a little different than most of the waitresses up here. I said, oh yeah, I'm living in my van at the campground and just got my master's degree in political science. And the next thing I know, I'm sitting at the table and I'm being interviewed and they say, please come talk tomorrow. And so I put on some nice clothes out of the campground and went up for the interview and it was the Lieutenant governor's office. And they said, you know, the state had just built the pipeline. It was, Alaska was in the process of building whatever it was going to be. It was all possibility. It was all horizon. Um, and there was a shortage of, of talented people. And here I had a master's degree in political science. And before I knew what hit me, I am working in the Lieutenant Governor's office and quickly advanced to the position of special assistant where I worked for a number of years um, until um, 1984. I might have my years a little mixed up at which point I switched to the legislature and worked for the Eskimo Senator representing the North Slope of Alaska, um, all, the, all the while spending every night and weekend with these cool people I had met who were trying to start this theater company named Perseverance Theater, going back to that phone call in the, in the phone booth at the gas station on a dark rainy night. And, um, and those two things sort of worked together and then at a, uh, for a couple of years. And, at, and then at a certain point, Molly said to me, we need to, we have to stop being volunteer. We need to be professional. Will you quit your positions and come and be the producing director and raise the money and help turn this into more than a community-based theater and into a professional theater? And I thought about it and agonized about it. And then I did, I resigned my high paying positions in Alaska politics and uh, went to work for this theater company. My salary was going to be whatever I was able to raise. And, oh. uh, and thus began the next 12, 15 years of my life where I became one of the core members of a group of people. And we did everything from uh, raising the money to acting on the stage, to cleaning the bathrooms, to building a theater. And, um, and I spent 12 years doing that and left Perseverance. Um, after we, I had built it up to a million dollar a year organization, we had established an Alaska conservatory and I had written some plays. I had started my playwriting and won a full fellowship to go to Brown University to then just focus on the writing. So that's sort of the, the thumbnail story, but that's how I got to Alaska and how those things intersected. I do have to say that all of the experience that I got working for Lieutenant Governor uh, Terry Miller and Senator Frank Ferguson, both of whom have passed on, unfortunately. They were great men and they mentored me beautifully. Um, uh, I then took that to the arts community and I also became the arts lobbyist for Alaska. And I um, lobbied uh, funding for all the state uh, arts organizations and built a coalition, uh, uh, an arts advocacy coalition that helped solidify um, the place uh, for Perseverance Theater. That was my main goal and, and also the arts in Alaska, so. 
you have amazing talent, uh, truly amazing talent, because the kind of abilities you need for a bureaucracy or a political is one set. Starting something from new is very entrepreneurial, even with a group of people, and then having to lobby for money and get it going. Your salary is dependent on what you can do. Um, you're a very strong woman <laughs> to well, do that. But what pulled you away from from being in government? What what was so exciting that you would just jump off and do that? There was a period of time in Alaska when. Um, Alaska had sort of woken up, there was oil money, um, all of the legal issues around native claims had been settled, the pipeline was working, uh, was running, and the state was in a position to, in, to invent itself. And it was a landscape where anybody with a good idea and the willingness to work hard could realize um, what they wanted to do, because there was nothing there. And if you wanted something, you had to create it. And that just appealed to me as a creative person um, that it was basically you, you could build the life you wanted. You could imagine it. And then there were the means to make it happen. Nothing was handed to you. You had to work hard. I have to say that my ability to raise money and to work politically and to work administratively, which was, um, was at a certain point became a detriment because I was so good at it, but it wasn't really the thing that made me passionate. And as much as I love politics, it's not the thing that rings my bells. I have always been a lover of literature. I have harbored since a young age, a deep, deep desire to be a writer. Um, and I didn't discover till I got to Alaska that the writing that I was best suited for was dramatic writing. At, at one point, you know, when I was in high school, I thought, oh, I'm gonna be a poet and then I'm gonna write a novel. And But I realized, no, no, I'm a playwright and I'm a dramatic writer. And um, so, um, so, but the better I was at these other things that actually kept pulling me away from this thing I really wanted to do, which was to write. Um, but now that I'm looking back at those years, I realized that Alaska and all of my experiences working in politics, working as an administrator, working as a, doing every job there is to do just about within the theater um, and creating something out of nothing was the best training possible to be a writer. Um, because a writer's life is full of obstacles. And so if you're going to build something new, you've got, all, you've got a lot of obstacles you have to get over, overcome. And in trying to move Perseverance Theater and build it and, do, you know, and trying to work politically, it was all about seeing obstacles and figuring out ways to get around them in order to meet your goals. Well, that is a talent that stands me in good stead as a writer, because that's what, that's what playwriting is all about. That's what being a writer is all about. Um, and it also gave me a, um, I like to say it made me a whole theater person. Um, you know, I teach right now. Well, because I know every single thing that goes into putting something on stage because I've done it. I have done the props. I have built the costumes. I've built the theater. I've stage managed. I've run the lights. I've run the sets, the sounds. I haven't designed. That's one thing I haven't done. Um, I've stage managed. I've acted. I have I have cleaned the toilets and handed out the program. Um, I have, I've raised the money. I had to represent the, you know, the theater to the community. I've done the marketing. I've done the press. There's with, with the exception of design, there is not a job in the theater that I haven't done. And so when I write a play, I know 
I know what has to happen to bring that play to the stage. And so if nothing else, my work is stage worthy because I, I know it's not an individual thing. It's I am writing for this collaborative team, all of whom have very specific jobs. I know what those jobs are because I've done those jobs. And so my plays, my operas, my musicals are all positioned there. I write for the stage. I don't write for the page. And I've had, I've worked in all those areas. So I know what they are. That's what I mean. Like I, it, it made me a whole theater person and completely transformed the way that I approach writing. So what I'm thinking about is to ask you when you are writing because of your hands-on experience, do you also see what the play that you're writing will look like on stage? Are you also the director and the lighting person or you're just making their job easier? Well, I think as a writer, I envision everything. I do direct, I do design in my head. But the one thing that I learned by working with a team of people all of those years is that um, I don't have the best ideas and that when a group of people work together to a common purpose, such as mounting production, that the production is really good if there's room for everybody to bring their creativity. And so that means that me as the writer or me as the actor, whatever part I'm playing, needs to make room for the creative of others. And I've learned as a playwright specifically that, um, that when you work with really good actors and directors, they always show you things about your work that you didn't know, that you never saw before. And to me, that's the great joy of working in the theater. It's that collaborative um, the collaborative contributions of others, which, you know, uh, make your work bigger and better. Um, so it's not about, I, I'm, I'm not the kind of writers that like, I want my vision on the stage. Um, I look at it this way. I've already experienced my vision by writing the play. I've, I've already experienced that. So I know that. So collaboration gives me an opportunity to see what else I can learn about what I have written by the addition of others. You know what's so interesting about it to me is uh, the surrender part, that you have the attitude that by giving it over to the other talents and maintaining a voice, that it can be larger, different, different emphasis than the one you had when you were writing it. Very interesting. And yeah. I always wondered how, how you come to consider yourself a, a dramatic writer versus a, do you hear voices? Are there problems you want to solve? Are you there very interested in relationships? That's a really good question. And I don't know that I have an answer to it. I, um, I, I, for some reason I have a nose for how things work on the stage. And I don't know why I do. Maybe it's because my, my parents were in a Gilbert and Sullivan opera company when I was a kid and I sort of spent you know, hours sitting in rehearsals while they were doing practice, you know, play practice. Um, but um, I, I just have a, maybe it's the complexity of theater. Theater is really like architecture. It's not just about words. And um, you, you're having to create a very complex like architecture that brings a lot of different people together. Um, maybe it's the, the fact that I just love the theater and I love the present tense of it. I love sitting in an audience and watching a play or an opera or a musical. And um, 
um, I just, I just have a nose for it, I guess. I, that's an unsatisfactory answer, I know, but I'm not sure. That's the beginning of an answer because it's a beginning of an exploration. Uh-huh. Uh, because what yeah. I hear you say is, is quite technical in the sense of structurally. And yes. Otherwise, it'll fall apart or fall differently. And you have to pay attention to the words and what happens when and, and whatever else that crosses your mind at the time. But we know architecture can take many forms. And what I've read about your work is that it likes to incorporate other sensitivities from other cultures. Yes. How did you come to that? I've always loved to travel. I've always, you know, uh, I've, I've always been curious about other people, other countries, other cultures. Um, and I, uh, when I finally did go to graduate school for playwriting, which I did everything backwards. I, you know, ran the theater and helped build the theater for 15 years. And then I went to graduate school after I had done that. I then jumped in and started studying Japanese theater, Asian American theater, um, theater from all over the world. And then I started applying for international exchanges and have done a number of international residencies. Um, uh, one of which I'm doing right now in Kenya, in Africa. And, um, and I am just genuinely curious about the, the cultures that different people in different countries make. And, um, uh, and I love the theatricality of world theater. And so I found myself very early on so um, excited by these conventions and these traditions that were so different than anything we see usually on the stages in America that I started figuring out, well, how could I take that form and put it into, uh, put it into an American subject and make it appeal to an American audience? Because the other thing that I haven't said, and the, another thing that I got from Alaska is that uh, my experience in Alaska made me very populist. You know, um, I may be dabbling in no theater, which sounds like very elite arcane kind of, or culturally aesthetic, you know, elitism, but actually I'm, I'm a unabashed populist. I want to speak to the general audience. I, I want to speak to a big audience. In Alaska, you had to speak to the whole community. Um, Shakespeare for me is always the model because the groundlings were there and the queen was there and everybody in between. And that's what I want in my theater. So, you know, if I'm going to be mixing and matching, I'm always doing it towards an eye or with an eye towards making what I'm doing accessible and understanding to an American audience and something that's fresh and original that puts things together in a way that they haven't seen before but that is completely accessible. It's not about being obscure and something that, you know, 10 people downtown will be able to understand. I want a thousand people uptown <laughs> to get it, you know? Um, so it, to me, it's just very creative that, you know, to, to travel and to, and to bring all those wonderful influences into the world and into the work, because that's the world we live in. It's always been the world we live in, but especially today. I uh, have always wondered if a play, it just say America, if a play is written, say, or an opera, but will it be understood or enjoyed or received differently if it plays in different parts of our country, never mind another country? Um, and now that I listen to you say you really want a big audience, 
that must have to change or not how you write. As my students will attest, I am a real stickler for understandability. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not creating obscure things on stage that people can't figure out. I am like stubbornly clear about what the story is, who the characters are, what they're doing. That doesn't mean I'm taking them to expected places. I want to take them to unexpected places. Um, but you are right that work plays differently um, to different communities. And so for me, that just means that um, the goal then is to write whatever I'm writing with obviously the great specificity that it needs, but to never lose sight of the fact that it must be grounded in something universally human. That doesn't matter where you are, Spain, Africa, New York City, Michigan, that, that it will relate in some way. And I've seen this played out beautifully with uh, a play that I wrote called The Women of Lockerbie, which has now had over 700 productions around the world in nine different languages. And it's a play that's about the, um, a, a, that it tells a story surrounding the uh, bombing of Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. And it's really, uh, it's written in the form of a Greek tragedy. It's a contemporary Greek tragedy, um, but it explores responses to terrorism. It explores grief. That's what it's anchored in. And it's been really wonderful for me to see all the different uses that people have made of that play. Um, I was invited over to Spain where they were producing it. And I, um, I said to them, oh, so you're doing this play because of the Madrid train bombings, right? And they said, oh, no, no, that's not why we're doing the play. We're doing the play in order to begin a conversation about the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s when Franco's army went into the liberal areas of the country, took all the men out of the villages and shot them. Uh, um, and the, you know, the, the disappeared people issue that is, it continues to be important in Spain today. And it's a, it's a wound that has been there for 90 years, 80 years in the country. And the women of Lockerbie done in the language that had been outlawed by Franco and that had resulted in the execution of many people. The play was done in that language to begin a, a conversation. Um, this happened maybe 10 years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, so it, it was being used in a different way than I imagined. It was done in Belarus, which is very much in the news today, uh, by the Belarus Free Theater, which has since been exiled and kicked out of their country. But they did a secret production of this play, and it was really their way of exploring the idea of speaking truth to power, because that's what the women of Lockerbie were doing to the U.S. State Department. Not at all what I was, in my mind, it wasn't in my mind when I wrote the play, but the play was able to speak to that issue in that part of the world, which just delights me to no end, because I, you know, I want the work to be able to live in many different contexts and have many different meanings. So that to me is a good thing and I'm, I'm pleased by that. I find that quite interesting because that means uh, in the general sense, you explained what you explained, but I wondered if we just talked America and if each of us came with a slightly different orientation uh, because of our life experience and saw mm -hmm. one of your works, if we would also relate differently uh, from other people in the, the audience. Anyway, the, what interests me is 
why would a person go to the theater? Um, are they looking chained? Are they looking to be taught? Are they looking to have an emotional experience? Um, is it a distraction from responsibility? Have, what are your thoughts on that? I would say yes, 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 yes. <laughs> All of the above. I mean, I, I think everybody goes for, you know, different reasons. And I think like even myself, I love to be entertained. I love to be entertained, right? I, I'm like a regular person in that way. But I also want to be enriched. I also want an emotional yes. I want something with deep meaning, you know. Um, somebody else may want something different, and that's okay. Um, you know, again, I go back to Shakespeare. He is becoming more and more, especially today, the standard to shoot for. You have to write for everybody. Um, How is that possible? <laughs> well, he did it. You know, he did it. So if you look at any Shakespearean play, there's always a comic scene. There's always a really good sword fight. You know, stuff like that really appeals to the groundlings who just want to see the, the cool, you know, the special effects, right? Um, you could go to Phantom of the Opera and just completely enjoy the swinging chandelier over your head. Or if you like music, you can approach it more aesthetically. It, it, it gives you, there, there's many things to be had. And um, uh, it, it within a production and Shakespeare was talking to the queen and he was talking to the ground, the illiterate groundling at the same time. Zayami, the no master from Japan, who I've studied a great deal, um, says the same thing. And he said, you know, there in every audience, there's someone who sees with their eyes only and there are those who see with their hearts. And it's his way of saying, you have the queens and the groundlings. You've got people who will see deeply and people who won't see deeply at all. And you have to give something to everybody. That's what I mean by populist. Tell us uh, just a little bit about the Kenya project. Well, I, in this case, I am working as an artistic advisor um, to a group of Kenyan writers and composers I'm doing this in collaboration with Fred Carl, who is a composer that I teach with at NYU, and Roberta Levito, who uh, used to run international programs at the Sundance Institute. Um, and the short version of it is there's a, a guy by the name of Eric Wanaina in Kenya, who is basically Kenya's pop star. He wrote the soundtrack to everybody's love lives. You know, I mean, he, you, you jump in a cab in Kenya and you say, I'm working with Eric Wanaina, and the cab driver will start singing one of his songs. He's you know, I guess you could say maybe he would be like the Bruce Springsteen was for our generation. Um, and he, um, enormously talented, driven guy, said that Kenya has got so many wonderful music, dance uh, traditions from all the different tribal groups. And that he felt that it was really ripe for, uh, an, uh, for a new musical theater based in those traditions. And he reached out to us and said, will you come? Um, and mentor us and help me create a festival of the first, the first ever festival of African written um, I'm so sorry, I have to interrupt, but we are truly out of time, but I'm so glad we got at least a short description of that. Yes. So everyone, what we have learned from our visit today is it very helpful to be prepared. Secondly, you have to have a lot of energy. Third, you have to um, sort of be flexible. And it's wonderful. She had the good luck to land up in Alaska at a time of great freedom. So she could go in any direction and did. <laughs> and 
but she was true to herself. And what's the driving force in her in part is her confidence and her curiosity and her, I believe, her willingness to work hard and to be heard uh, in a singularly optimistic frame of mind from, from my point of view, because I think if you can be heard and if you can be the person who listens, you both have given each other a, a gift, whether it's in theater or in personal life or almost anything else. So thank you for tuning in and please do something kind for someone you know and someone you don't know every single day and I'll see you next week. Thank you again. To contact Junia, send her an email at juniadonesthespark at gmail.com. For more information, program schedules, and news about future guests, go to www.juniadonethespark.com. Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Junia Dones the Spark. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation.